Today on Off the Cuff Declassified, the war words between Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau escalates. What can we expect from the Trump-Kim summit in North Korea? We'll discuss. Robert De Niro goes unhinged at the Tony Awards and a former Secret Service agent warned authorities in Parkland, Florida that Stoneman Douglas High School was unsafe weeks before the shooting. Lots of drama after the G7 summit in Quebec last week. But I don't understand why. I don't know why. Donald Trump went to that summit and did something apparently unprecedented that has people hysterical. The president of the United States of America actually had the audacity, I mean the audacity, to put America first <clears throat> after running on a platform after winning an election because he told the world, I'm going to put America first. And really, in the final analysis, that's all Donald Trump is guilty of. Going there and telling the member nations, <clears throat> the EU nations, specifically Canada, this is war of words with Justin Trudeau, that we're going to get into. But Donald Trump, again, had the audacity to not want 270% tariffs charged on American dairy goods going into Canada without the United States doing the same or Canada removing these draconian levies. This is, this is so ridiculous. The hysteria on the left, among the neocons, among people like John McCain. Now, John McCain, a guy who is, is saying that America's globalist. John McCain's tweets are, are beyond the pale. I, uh, I'm, gonna have, I'm queuing one up for you. I'm going to find it for you. But one of the things John McCain said, and let me, let me dig it up, is uh, that John McCain basically is apologizing to the world. Apologizing. Apologizing. Because America actually put America forward at the G7 summit. John McCain tweeted, to our allies, bipartisan majorities of Americans remain pro-free trade, ready, <clears throat> pro-globalization, and supportive of alliances based on 70 years of shared values. Americans stand with you, even if our president doesn't. Now, McCain uh, tweeted this out on Saturday, Saturday evening, uh, a little before 9 p.m., and immediately was, was slammed on Twitter for tweeting that. Americans are not pro-globalization. Americans remain pro-free trade. Yeah, look, free trade is great. Free trade is wonderful. Free trade makes the world go round. <clears throat> but it must be fair trade. Fair trade is imperative. Because it's not free trade when one side charges tariffs and the other doesn't. This, this ludicrous assertion by guys like McCain, by these neocons, by these rhinos, that the United States must continue to be the world's doormat is, is quite frankly just inexplicable to me. It is absolutely inexplicable. Now, they're talking about Navarro and others in the White House are talking about Canada's Justin Trudeau acting meek. Trump tweeted, PM Justin Trudeau of Canada acted so meek and mild during our G7 meetings only to give a news conference after I left saying that, quote, U.S. tariffs were kind of insulting and that he, quote, will not be pushed around. Trump went on to say, very dishonest and weak. Our tariffs are in response to his 270 percent 
on dairy. So Peter Navarro then went on Fox News and he said there's a special place in hell for for any foreign leader, like I read it to you, that engages in bad faith diplomacy with Donald Trump and tries to stab him in the back on the way out the door. Now, I think that Trudeau is being incredibly weak. He's being incredibly weak. The G7 for him was more about his hairdo and practicing handshakes with, uh, he's going to practice handshakes with Trump. I mean, Trudeau is really uh, Obama. He's Canadian Obama. They, they expect the world to be a certain way. They love the accolades and the celebration they receive when they walk into a room. They really don't want to do work. They don't want to do anything. Then you saw it from uh, Don Mc, uh, John McCain. Don McCain. <laughs> John McCain as well. He, uh, he's, he's out of his mind. Now, John McCain is a very sick man. I wonder, I wonder if John McCain actually wrote that tweet. But again, all Donald Trump is doing, all Donald Trump is doing is, is putting America not even first, but on an equal footing with the rest of the world. When Donald Trump says to Germany, <clears throat> if you don't square things away, we're going to tag, we're going to tariff, or hell, we might even restrict the import of Mercedes and BMWs. Now, <clears throat> that's not really going to happen, okay? But you can't enter a negotiation without leverage. You can't do it. The United States has tremendous leverage, tremendous leverage. Our GDP is $18 trillion, in the neighborhood of $18 trillion. Canada's is somewhere in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars. I'll give you the number right now. Uh, right now. Um, Canada's GDP, <clears throat> as we see here right now, according to uh, the uh, CIA fact book and a few other sources, is one and a half trillion dollars. So the United States <clears throat> is literally 10 times larger in terms of an economy than Canada's. Trudeau needs us. But everybody before Trump, and I, and I like that Donald Trump uh, said, look, I'm not only blaming Barack Obama, but I'm going back 50 years. Trade became imbalanced, became upside down for the United States over decades. I love to blame things on Obama, but Obama didn't do more or less than any other previous president to create the trade imbalance. Obama simply didn't do anything, and he allowed the imbalance to grow. Now, I didn't expect Obama to do anything. George W. Bush, we're finding out more and more, was a globalist. I believe he loved this nation, but he was really an establishment guy, and he was a globalist. This all evidenced by John McCain's tweet. John McCain duped the world into believing he was a conservative. John McCain is as liberal as it gets. He's a man who truly believes in a globalized new world order. Something that no one wants. No, a bipartisan majority of Americans do not want a new world order. John McCain do not want globalism. Like I said, he's a very sick guy. So I wonder who really wrote that tweet for him. I don't believe that John McCain himself wrote that tweet. I just, I don't buy it. Now also got Larry Kudlow jumping in. Kudlow uh, said that Trudeau had basic, what did he say? He had, um, <clears throat> he called Trudeau's verbal attacks on the president amateurish and a betrayal. Kudlow went further than Trump. He said he really did kind of stab us in the back. His exact quote was, he really kind of stabbed us in the back. He did a great disservice to the whole G7. 
he uh the meaning Trudeau. Now they uh I don't know why these countries are flipping out that Trump wants to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum. I truly don't. Well, I do. They were so used to the United States for years saying, all right, we know how this globalism game is played. We know how it's played. <clears throat> I got to talk tough. I got to talk tough. But nothing's going to change. Don't you worry about it. I understand the new world order. We're all going to be on equal footing. So you're going to win the trade war. It's not a trade war. <clears throat> we're going to be the world doormat. We're going to let you do whatever you want. But those days are over. Those days are over. Now, Kudlow said that Trudeau, quote, busted up <clears throat> the G7 summit with his remarks. And I apologize. I'm just terrible time of year for my allergies. My voice has been terrible on air. So sorry about that. He then called uh, the comments, Kudlow called Trudeau's comments, a betrayal and sophomoric. <clears throat> we did in good in faith, he said, Kudlow. I personally negotiated with Prime Minister Trudeau. <clears throat> the non-factual part of this is that they have enormous tariffs. Now, Dianne Feinstein and the Democrats are saying it's one thing for Mr. Trump to get angry, but another to ditch the agreement because Trump didn't sign on <clears throat> to that G7 agreement. And I think he's right. I think he's 100% right. If the deal isn't right for you, get up and walk off the table. The Feinstein's quote was, I understand the president was upset, but to walk away from our allies was a big mistake. But it wasn't. But it wasn't. Why do the allies get the better end of the deal than us? Get the better end of the deal and we get the short end of the deal. If they're truly our allies, they would have wanted us to stay at the table. They would have made accommodations to keep us there. But they're so used to ganging up on the United States and getting their way, that never crossed their mind. And Trump looks at it and he says, <clears throat> this is nuts. This isn't the way things are supposed to go. This is ridiculous. I'm here. We're the United States. We've got an economy larger than all of you guys combined, with the exception of China. You need us more than we need you. We've got the money. We've got the consumers. We buy your stuff and you're penalizing our manufacturers, our farmers. Now, there's another issue here. Okay. Manufacturing jobs, producing jobs are the backbone of any economy. You got to make things to have a GDP. You've got to farm things, produce things, grow things, create things. We've lost our manufacturing sector. It was soaring. After World War II into the 70s, it dipped to its lowest point ever <clears throat> under Barack Obama. And a lot of that has to do with unfair trade, things being made in Canada, all those uh, in um, China, in Mexico, in Taiwan, all those jobs going offshore, and even to an extent in Canada. All those jobs going offshore. Our manufacturing sector was decimated, and as a result, our steel industry our aluminum industry. We only have one aluminum smelter in this nation that can, uh, uh, that can produce, that can smelt military-grade aluminum, aluminum for aircraft and other military uses. One in the United States of America. That's a fundamental problem, and that's what Donald Trump is trying to fix. We need to be competitive again. The United States is again producing gas and oil, and we're going to be the largest 
a net producer of oil by 2023. We're already doing incredible things with natural gas. Our economy will be stronger as a result. It'll be impenetrable. Economic security is national security. But what they don't understand, what the neocons and the globalists want, they don't understand is that America is behind the president. What they want is America to be cut down to size. They need to be loved by the rest of the world. They genuinely care. A guy like John McCain genuinely cares more about what Angela Merkel, Emmanuel Macron, and Theresa May think of him than he does what Americans think of him. And that is a fundamental problem when you're a United States senator. It's a bigger problem when you're the president of the United States. A much bigger problem. Donald Trump cares far less about what Macron, May, Merkel think of him. He doesn't care. You see my friend Rick Grinnell over there and as our ambassador to Germany, basically putting Germany in their place and saying, hey, we are going to back the conservatives. Enough with globalism. Enough with this nonsense. We're not doing it anymore. And the liberals and the neocons are absolutely hysterical. I think what the president did at this summit was spot on. I think that the president of the United States understands, he truly understands what's going to be needed to get fair trade. Free trade is great. Fair trade is imperative. Remember that. And sometimes to get what you need, you walk off the table. You walk away. Now, final analysis. These countries need the U.S. They're not going to go enter into the G7 and, and make it a G6 and go proceed without us. Of course they're not. They're nervous wrecks. That's why they're doing this. And I guarantee you, they are livid at Trudeau. But see, they've got to save face with their own voters. Their own voters are very liberal. <clears throat> their own voters despise the big, bad, evil, imperial United States. All nonsense. Not Canadians. Not the growing right in France and Germany, but the ones that elected Macron and Merkel and May and Trudeau. So they're pandering to their individual bases. That's why they're slamming Trump. It's not about what's best for their nations. It's not about what's best for the United States. Trump is playing to his base, the 63 million Americans who voted for him, which flies in the face of McCain's bipartisan majority of Americans that want globalization. No, they don't. So what's going to wind up happening here is this is going to be a war of might. And when these other countries realize what it means to be penalized by the United States, what it means to have the United States pull out as a trading partner, they're going to wake up to their worst nightmare. And I predict they're going to reverse course very quickly. This is just the shock of the initial smack across the face. They've never had a president of the United States willing to say, the United States is more powerful than you. The United States is wealthier than you. And we're calling the shots. They were used to doormat presidents that played the globalism game, but those days are over. They better get used to this new world order, the one that puts America back in front, leading by power and by its wealth. So tomorrow is the historic summit between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump in North Korea. Now, there are plenty of neocons and globalists, the same people rooting for Canada, Germany, uh, England, and France in the G7. Well, they're rooting probably for Kim to embarrass Donald Trump because they hate Donald Trump 
more than they love their nation. But Trump's already winning. Number one, Kim is leaving North Korea to go to the summit. There's a, an Associated Press story titled, Isolated Kim Takes Big Gamble Leaving Home for Trump's Summit. But uh, I don't understand why it's such a gamble. The guy wants to be, the guy wants to be considered a player, a legitimate player in the world. And he's got to leave his little North Korea bubble. So, of course, the AP running cover for Kim writes, Spare a moment, as you anticipate, one of the most unusual summits in modern history to consider North Korea's leader as he left the all-encompassing bubble of his locked-down stronghold of Pyongyang on Sunday and stepped off a jet onto Singapore soil for his planned sit-down with President Donald Trump on Tuesday. There's just no recent precedent the gamble Kim Jong-un is taking. And what do they think? We're going to kidnap the guy? As far as we know, his despot father only traveled out of the country by train and rarely at that because of fears of assassination. Him, up until his recent high-profile summit with South Korea's president on the southern side of their shared border, has usually hunkered down behind his vast propaganda and security services or made short trips to autocrat-friendly China. They go on to say how it's uh, how Singapore, even though it's somewhat authoritarian, is a bastion of capitalism where capitalism works well. And will Kim perform well in front of 3,000 journalists, international journalists? And uh, who cares? <laughs> who cares? The only thing I care about in this summit is winning, is getting Kim to denuclearize and making the region safer. China's going to help us do that. China's going to help us do it. Japan's going to help us do it. Japan, by the way, we spoke in the last segment about the G7. Japan was, was right in sync with President Trump at the G7. Oh, they, they can't publicly say it, but they know. They know because their GDP is about four times larger than everybody else's. Japan thrives. They thrive. And they know what, what, what fair trade means. But back to North Korea. Now, Japan has a, uh, a very critical stake in North Korea because these rockets North Korea has, well, they can reach Japan. And if, if Kim has a nuclear-tipped rocket, it's a direct threat to Japan, a direct threat to Japan, and a direct threat to us because we've been a solid ally of Japan since shortly after World War II. Now, I've said on this show many, many times, I've said on air many, many times that as much as diplomacy and military might can rid a nation of a dictatorship, can rid communism, capitalism, is really what does it. And I've said many, many times on this show and others, as much as it was Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, and Pope John Paul II that brought the Berlin Wall down, what kept it down was McDonald's in Moscow. Was capitalism flooding? Capitalism is a rushing river. Once its flow starts, you can't stop it. <clears throat> you literally, you literally have to build a dam. You have to build another wall to stop the flood of capitalism. But it doesn't matter because there's always going to be water on either side of that dam. You're never really going to stop it. It's always going to be there. And that's one of the reasons that while, while others have said, even those in conservative media, people I like, Trump never should have taken the summit. Trump never should have legitimized Kim. He never should have legitimized North Korea. I said, no, he should have for a couple of reasons. First being, we needed the door to crack open. 
because we needed intelligence about North Korea. We need to crack that door open. They've done a great job that that uh, AP piece is right with regards that North Korea is a nation that's locked down. We know very little about it. We have very little intelligence coming out of North Korea. There's some, but what we can glean from China and other Western nations where we can embed our spies and have them pose as members of other nations, other security services, intelligence services that share with us. But it's nowhere near what we have on on China and Russia and Iran, all the other players out there. We need it. We desperately need it. But if we can get a McDonald's in Moscow, we can get a Chick-fil-A, Pyongyang, a Chick-fil-A, whatever the fast food chain is, I don't care. That's how you fundamentally change North Korea. North Korea changes for the better when South Korea's Hyundai's and Kia's are sitting in North Korean driveways and South Korea's Samsung TVs are hanging on North Korean living room walls. That's when North Korea truly becomes a free and open society. Now, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Baby steps. There's an interesting story in the Daily Mail and it's titled, Will Will Kim Seek Burger Diplomacy? North Korea leader could look to bring McDonald's and a Trump-branded hotel to Pyongyang to secure security and investment at summit. North Korean officials say the isolated regime wants to modernize its economy. They said North Korea wants to become a normal country. They said wants to become a normal country at a dinner in April. A South Korean official who was there said the North wants U.S. investments. Asked for examples of U.S. sponsors, the North Korean representative cited McDonald's and a Trump Tower. Now, that would be hilarious. And what a win if a Trump Tower went into Pyongyang when this guy denuclearized. It might as well put an American flag in the center of the city. Well, see, I think this is uh, exceptional. I think the mere fact that they're open to it is exceptional. It's further than anyone else has gotten. Now, look, I don't trust North Korea. But this guy's getting a taste of something. He's realizing that this isn't a globalist administration. Kim is getting a taste of something. Realizing that this is not a globalist administration. That Trump isn't going to dupe him into a meeting, dupe him into a deal with the intention of changing regimes. Trump would rather control him. And I think he knows that. I think he knows that Trump would much rather control him than change regimes. Because look, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. I think that we need to uh, also understand Kim now, more press, more of an international spotlight is on him, which creates problems for his Chinese masters. And we talked about GDPs, right? Canada's being 1.5 trillion, the US being near 18 trillion, 17 plus trillion, Japan being in the $5 trillion range. Well, North Korea's GDP is only 12.4 billion, billion. Put it in perspective, Apple, Apple is, is getting close to an $800 billion market valuation. One U.S. company, one U.S. company is almost 70 times more valuable than the entire nation of North Korea. $12.4 billion is nothing. It's a pittance. Put it in another uh, perspective. It costs about $2.2 billion to build a B-2 stealth bomber. We have 20 or 22 of them. North Korea 
if they did nothing else, could only afford six of them. That, they, would, they would be completely broke. They would have nothing left. If they liquidated every dollar they have, they'd only be able to buy six of what we have 20 or 22 of. They're a very, very poor nation. Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos could literally buy and sell them several times over. They're broke as a nation. Dead broke. And you can see it by when those, those uh, night shots of South Korea full of lights and thriving and North Korea is dark. It's dark. Nothing going on there. It's a dismal, poor place. Terrible, terrible place. Guy is 34 years old. I think this guy wants to at least try to put a little more money in his own pocket. Look, he's a dictator. So if North Korea's economy does well, that means he's funneling that money to offshore accounts. That money's in Switzerland somewhere, a good chunk of it. But if the people live better, so what? And I think Trump understands this. Now, this is a good story because it says the U.S. price for normalization, complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization is one Pyongyang has never before been willing to pay seeing nuclear weapons as the ultimate guarantee of the Kim regime's survival. Sure. But after the April summit, Kim and Moon, the South Korean president, signed a joint declaration detailing their joint goal to work towards a complete denuclearization of the Korean peninsula. And that could be in the cards with another historic summit between Kim and Trump set for tomorrow. Now, Pompeo dangled the prospect, it says, of U.S. investments in North Korea with upgrades in energy, infrastructure, technology, and agriculture if a deal is struck. That's a game changer for North Korea, which is why I have high hopes going in. We, North Korea has nothing we want. Nothing. Nothing. If they develop five, ten nukes, we could take that threat out if, God forbid, they ever launched. It'd be the worst mistake, and he knows that. They don't have industry. They don't have agriculture. They don't have energy. They've got nothing. We have all the leverage in the world going in. All the leverage in the world going in. So Pompeo dangled that. He said, the Secretary of State said, quote, this will be Americans coming in to help build out the energy grid. They need enormous amounts of electricity in North Korea to work with them to develop infrastructure, all the things that the North Korean people need. The capacity for American agriculture to support North Korea so they can eat meat and have healthy lives. Those are the kinds of things that if we get what it is the president has demanded, the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization of North Korea that the American people will offer in spades. That was U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Now, he's met twice with Kim. He's creating a relationship. And he believes uh, that Kim is willing to play ball They've been willing to play ball. Now, nobody trusts Kim, but I get what Pompeo's doing. He's going to let Kim save face. No one trusts Kim. The guy does have nukes. South Korea is vital. Not just about nukes. North Korea has enough conventional weapons to destroy South Korea. You combine that with those rockets, you hit Japan. Now you're hitting two critical economic powers in the region. Better to do this. Better to get this guy to a table, get him to the table, get him to denuclearize, help his economy, let capitalism creep in, because the minute it does, the minute it does, 
the regime has changed. You might have the same guy running the, the uh, country, but slowly but surely, North Korea will become a, a, a much better version of its former self. A much better version. But again, like I said when we talked about trade, no one in the world is used to a strong president, a strong United States. They're so used to weakness that they don't understand Trump can pull this off because we've been, we've been run. The Oval Office has been occupied by globalists for so long. No longer the case. Trump's a doer. He's a guy who just wants results. He wants to get things done. He wants to zero balance the budget, put another check mark in the win column, and move on to the next task. He's doing that with the G7. He's going to do it with North Korea. Now, barring any major hiccups, I predict, and we're going to be talking about it on Wednesday's show because the uh, summit, we'll probably get the results of the summit uh, after tomorrow's show, uh, unless something happens very, very early in the day. Kim also is only scheduled to be there for five hours after the summit begins. So we don't expect this to go very long. <clears throat> Summit's supposed to begin, I think, at 9 a.m. Uh, yeah, and his, I'm doing the math in my hand, uh, his plane is scheduled to be wheels up at 2 p.m. And so hopefully uh, we, we hear something. That would mean he's got to take an hour or two to get to the airport, security and, and whatnot, to leave the summit to say his goodbyes. Really only to give him three or four hours at the table. Right? Uh, so this thing is going to be quick. This is not going to be an all-day summit unless he pushes his travel back. But right now, Kim is scheduled to leave five hours before the start time of the summit. And I, I think, I think our post analysis is going to be very positive. <clears throat> Kim is unpredictable, so I'm not going to say 100%. I predict it will be. But even if we walk away from the table, as we've seen Trump already do once, even if we walk away, I predict we're going to be back at it. But in my gut, I'll give you a better than 50% chance analysis. The United States is going to come out of tomorrow with a win. I know you're not going to believe this next story. I know you're not going to believe it. But Robert De Niro lost his mind at the Tony Awards saying F Trump. We expect that. De Niro's hated Trump because De Niro's your typical leftist. He's hated Trump ever since Trump got elected. These morons don't even know why. Look, Robert De Niro is just turning into a bitter old man. <clears throat> and if I was a guy that had gone from raging bull, taxi driver, the godfather, to Goodfellas, to B-comedies, B-movie comedies that absolutely flop at the box office, well, I'd be a little upset too. I'd be miserable and bitter. So he goes to the Tony Awards, which was like a who's who of liberals who hate America, and he stands up. And instead of, uh, you know, being dignified, instead of making it about Broadway, which is what the Tony Awards are about, something I don't watch anyway, uh, he said, quote, I'm going to say one thing, F Trump. It's no longer down with Trump, it's F Trump, pumping his fists in the air like some weirdo. Now, of course, of course, the crowd gave De Niro a standing Ovation. The crowd gave De Niro a standing ovation. Now, he was doing this while he was um, giving some kind of accolade to Bruce Springsteen for his show Springsteen on Broadway. Uh, Springsteen is another far left weirdo. I, I don't like Springsteen's music. It bores me. 
I know when I say that people go, you don't like Bruce. You don't like Bruce. I really don't. I, I always found his music boring and formulaic, and I've never been a Springsteen fan. And his far-left radicalism made me even less of a Springsteen fan. But this, is, it, this underscores a bigger problem here. He gets a standing ovation from the crowd. The crowd on national, international television didn't care about offending 63 million Americans. See, that's how little Hollywood thinks of you. That's how little the entertainment industry thinks of you. They're your betters. They're the elite. They know better than you. You're the fool. You're the moron. You voted for Donald Trump. You're, you're uh, incorrigible. You're insufferable to them. You support America first, not globalism. How dare you? How unenlightened you are. They're so much better than you. They know so much more than you do. So they get up and they give De Niro and his vulgarity a standing ovation. And basically what they're saying is not just F Trump, it's F you. To the 63 million Americans, 63 million Americans that voted for Donald Trump. You know, I, I, I say, and sometimes I get people agree with me and then some don't, I say that uh, we're in Civil War 2.0, but it's a culture war. And we're in it. And I've been saying it. And I've had people say, we're not, we're not, we're not. And I've had many people say, we are, we are, we are. Interestingly, veterans often agree with me. Oh, yeah, we're in a war, Civil War 2.0. Like, we got it. Hollywood proved it. You might not think you're in Civil War 2.0, but the far, far left, the media power of the far left, oh, they're in Civil War 2.0. They want you ideologically dead. They're fighting very, very hard to win. Civil War 2.0. While people on our side say, that's terrible, don't say that. The left, we want discourse and an honest discourse and we'll get back. They don't want discourse. They want you silenced. They want you to go away. If they could jail you, they would. We see it happening with censorship on social media. We see it happening with conservatives being banned on Facebook and Twitter for things liberals would never be banned for. We see it happening with a guy like Dinesh D'Souza being federally prosecuted but Rosie O'Donnell doing exactly the same thing, not being federally prosecuted. The Sousa, of course, being pardoned by Donald Trump. The IRS targeting conservatives and nobody paying the price for that scandal. Lois Lerner collecting a pension. Despite the IRS targeting conservative groups, weaponizing that agency. You see it in the deep state, weaponizing the intelligence and law enforcement agencies against the Trump campaign. Oh, that happened despite what they tell you didn't. Of course it happened. It all happened. And it was all disgraceful. It was terrible. And then you see it in Hollywood. See it in Hollywood. Where, and, and Broadway, same people, same stars go to the Tony Awards that go to the Oscars, that go to the Emmys, that go to the MTV Awards, that go to the Grammys. And it's all the same rhetoric. <clears throat> we hate Trump. We hate you. We hate conservatives. Screw Trump, F Trump, F conservatives, F Republicans. Screw you, we hate you. Half the country. And half the country says, you people are morons, we're going to boycott you, but not enough do. Not enough people boycott the entertainment industry because really, at the end of the day, we're a little smarter than they are. They provide a product. We watch the movie. We don't think much about their, we don't think much about their uh, political stupidity when we're watching the special effects. Something that bothered me, I, you know, I like the Jurassic Park movies. I think they're fun. 
and they're interesting. But the new one, I forget the name of it, when it gets when it gets hammered by liberal media as being too far left and being ridden with metaphors of racism and and uh, misogyny and and the environment. And it's like enough is enough is enough with all this. Enough's enough. I saw a movie, uh, 12 Strong, recently about the first <clears throat> Special Forces unit that went into Afghanistan, the horse soldiers. It was a good movie. It's a great movie. You know why? A lot of action. A lot of guys shooting at each other and killing each other. Historical accuracy. And no, no underlying far-left political messages. Just a good war movie. That's what it was. It was like an old-school war movie. That was it. The good guys were likable. The bad guys weren't. They shot at each other. The good guys won. Even better, it was a true story that had a great ending. Well, we've been at war for a long time, but that particular campaign had a great ending. That's the kind of movie Hollywood should make more of. Not these political statements. They flop. But what did, they, what did the uh, crew at the Tony Awards and the Nero achieve last night? Well, a room full of people patted each other on the back, <clears throat> right? And 63 million... 63 million Americans now look at them in disgust. So I don't know. They won their little battle in that room. Did they lose the war? I hope Americans stopped going to the theater, but I would venture a guess that people who tend to go to the theater are probably the 60-some-odd million Americans that voted for Hillary Clinton. So <clears throat> at the end of the day, they're playing to their base. Maybe, maybe they're right. I don't know. But what I do know is Americans need to, need to those on the right, need to start understanding that the left most certainly is in a war against you. The left hates you. The left wants you ideologically dead. The left doesn't care about you. They would jail you. They would silence you. They would strip your first, second, fourth, fifth. Hell, they would strip all your rights. They would strip the Bill of Rights, if they could, from conservatives. And it would only apply to liberals in its own perverse way. So wake up. You are in Civil War 2.0. You're in an ideological war. You don't believe me? Just watch a clip of last night's Tony Award. You know, we here at the Rebel have been calling for the removal of Broward County, Florida Sheriff Scott Israel after that horrific massacre that killed 17 at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. Well, there were many, many uh, uh, pieces that fell down, and I have always placed blame on two key players in all this. <clears throat> Broward County Sheriff Scott Israel and Broward County School Superintendent Robert Runcie. Runcie has been incredibly closed off. He's not shown any transparency. In 2014, there was an $800 million bond appropriation for schools. It's all a matter of public record. I've uh, presented it on the show before. It can all be researched very, very easily. Uh, all, of, all of the links the bond appropriation, what was supposed to be sent each school or on the county's website. Stoneman Douglas was to receive $10, $11 million uh, with a portion of that going, of the $800 million, portion of that going to school safety. None of that was ever carried out. And, and with regards to school safety, the only thing they were actually going to do at Stoneman Douglas was upgrade the fire system. Necessary, of course. But we're now learning that two months before the massacre, this is an exclusive story from the Florida Sun Sentinel, which is really... Fort Lauderdale area, Broward County's newspaper of record. Let me read this to you. Two months before the massacre at Stoneman Douglas High School, a retired Secret Service agent warned administrators 
that the school could be vulnerable to a gunman. And this wasn't just some random guy. This was a guy very familiar with the school, and the school very familiar with him. 27 years, retired Secret Service. And Steve Wexler, both of his kids had graduated from the school, and he was often a speaker there to classes on criminal rules of evidence, law enforcement, things of that nature. He's a well-known member of the community. He was a well-known fixture as an expert, the guy imparting his expertise. Over his career with the Secret Service around the school, he knew the facility incredibly well. Like I said, his kids went there. And he knew the buildings. He knew the problem. The retired agent, Steve Wackler, said he made his point by strolling through the school with post-it notes, attaching them to places his bullets or a knife would land if he were an intruder. No one stopped him, he said. The gates were unlocked. Students didn't wear any kind of identification. A fire alarm could send students streaming into halls, and the active shooter drills were inadequate. He said he told the administrators, quote, this stuff is blatantly obvious. You've got to fix this. But he never heard another word from the district. That's why I blame Superintendent Robert Runcie. I'm hearing story upon story upon story like this from parents who express concerns. I have a friend who uh, is a, a, a retired member of DevGrew of SEAL Team 6. He lives in Parkland. His kids, his son went to the school. His son was in the parking lot as a shooting was happening, waiting to pick up his girlfriend, a senior. His son had graduated last year. His girlfriend was a senior. He was in the parking lot waiting to pick her up while the gunshots went off. His son was able to carry out a victim. I know people very close to this. That was SEAL Team 6. And not long ago, he had always, uh, when he and I were talking about it after the fact, he said, yeah, the place was abysmal with regards to security and, and how the uh, gates were always open. It was very easy to get in. Well, now there's a state commission that's reviewing the shooting and wants to talk to retired Secret Service agent Wexler. Uh, Pinellas County, Florida Sheriff Bob Goteri, that's up near Tampa, good agency. He's running the commission. It's several full-time investigators are still lining up interviews, but they're interested in talking to Wexler, the retired agent. Now, school, uh, Broward School District spokesperson Tracy Clark confirmed that, quote, a school administrator did discuss security recommendations from an individual last year. Didn't disclose anymore. This is most likely Wexler because Wexler said he had these conversations in December. He pushed and he pushed and he pushed. The district finally took him up. He says, that's a quote, finally took me up on the offer in December when a teacher on behalf of the school security committee asked him to conduct a quote unquote site survey. He didn't know what prompted the request, but he printed out details. It's floor plan, bell schedule, aerial maps. He, uh, he arrived, here's what he says, yeah, which was ironic even the day that he went to his meeting. So the meeting was on December 13th when the school district finally took this retired Secret Service agent up on his offer. Because he arrived for his meeting on December 13th and he pulled in the visitor's parking lot. The gate was open, but he sat there for 20 minutes and no security approached him. What was Scott Peterson, the useless coward school resource officer, doing? Then he summoned assistant principal Winford Porter to his truck and asked permission to go on a demonstration. With Porter as his passenger, Wexler moved his truck into the bus loop through an open gate. Why the heck was it unlocked at midday, he wondered. What was the Broward County Sheriff's Office doing? With Porter watching from afar, Porter being the assistant principal, he wandered into the school breezeway surrounded by students and staff 
then walked through an open back door to the administration building. He had written numbers 1 through 20 on yellow post-it notes. He didn't want to mess with kids, he said, so he focused on the staff. Assistant Principal Denise Reed was the first adult he saw inside. He said he handed her the first sticky. It said 1. He was the first victim who could have been shot or stabbed if he was an intruder. Then he went to the second spot, posting post-it notes on desks and door jams. Nobody challenged him. Nobody approached him. Nobody said, who are you and why are you doing this? He had gone through all 20 post-it notes when he reached Deputy Scott Peterson's office. Now, this is the best part of this. The school resource officer had his back turned to the door while working on his computer. But he didn't put one of those post-its on, Wex, on, on Peterson's door because he said we're both cops. And it just he couldn't stomach even simulating a demonstration that a cop would have been shot. But he turned to Porter. And he turned to Porter, the assistant principal, and he said... I ran out of post-it notes. Do you want me to keep going? But he made his point. So for the next hour and a half, he laid out what he perceived to be a security recommendation. And, and this is what was among them. School gates should be locked and students should wear ID badges showing they belong on campus. School's policy requires the gates to be locked, but he found out they weren't. The shooter, Nicholas Cruz, was able to get on campus because the gate were opened at the end of the school day. Active shooter drills should be routine. Any adult should be able to declare a code red and lock down the school. Current protocol is that an assistant principal who notifies the principal who then makes the call. And he said, that's the problem. And he's right. This stuff happens fast. This playing telephone is no good. By that time, we could sit down and have breakfast. He's right. Shooting incidents jump off in seconds. I've been involved in them. Seconds. Schools should not immediately evacuate students for a fire alarm without first confirming there's a fire. During the shooting, the gunman set up a smoke alarm. Students fled into halls, and he had suspicion of barrels. I don't mean to be callous. And he said, we learned a lot from Columbine that Stoneman Douglas didn't do. Now, predictably, predictably, uh, the school district isn't commenting. The, the principals, the assistant principals are saying they learned a lot, but they're not going to comment because it's about safety. And... The Florida Department of Law Enforcement is now also reaching out to Wexler, Steve Wexler, the retired Secret Service agent. He said of the Stoneman Douglas administrators, quote, I tell them what to do and then they don't do it. If they didn't want to use the recommendations, why then would the school reach out to me? I said, keep the gates locked. If they had just kept the gates locked, the kid would have had to jump the fence and it would have been more obvious. It didn't have to happen. Those kids didn't have to die. <clears throat> He's right. He's right. I encourage everybody to read this story and I encourage everybody to go to firescottisrael.com, sign our petition. We really want to have Sheriff Scott Israel removed. Scott Peterson, the deputy, had the audacity to go on television and say he wasn't a coward. He was useless. He was worse than a coward. He was a useless coward. I've been infuriated about this shooting because it happened only about oh, 30 minutes from where I live and 25 minutes from the studio here. It, um, it hit home. I have friends, like I said, whose kids went to the school. I have a lot of friends who live in Parkland. Beautiful area. Wonderful neighborhood. Tragic, tragic event. And they had a well-known to them, retired United States Secret Service agent, somebody trained to protect the President of the United States of America, giving them world-class security recommendations for free. They didn't implement or take one of his suggestions. It is absolutely unacceptable. Unacceptable. 